Hello and welcome to Will We We Make Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. This is episode three of season three, the golden episode of the season. (laughs) If you're not a partner of the solution, you're a partner of the problem. It's all about partnerships and programs at the Sustainability in Prison Project. Nice. So as Amy just said, the season is all about the Sustainability in Prisons Project otherwise known as SPP, how they bring education, nature, and training into the prisons to reduce recidivism and protect and enhance our environment. This season is five to seven episodes long because, you know, we've never edited so many interviews before, and we will be interviewing a variety of people from SPP, as well as individuals from partnering organizations or people that have participated in the program. In this episode, we will learn more about the many partnerships that SPP has been involved in, what it takes to make these partnerships work, and how you might help develop a new partnership with SPP. Today, we would like to welcome Kelly Bush, SPP co-director, Mary Linders, who's a WDFW fish and wildlife biologist, and Carolina Landa, a former checker spot butterfly technician. You can learn more about each of them in our show notes. They will each share more about their involvement with the SPP partnerships and the value that this program has brought them, probably because of my love of details. When we first started researching this topic, I was fascinated by the number and complexity of partnerships involved that make SPP function at the level it does today. First, we would like to welcome Kelly Bush, SPP co-director, back to the program. Thanks for joining us again, Kelly. Thanks for having me. How do SPP Evergreen and Department of Corrections work together? So Sustainability in Prisons Project describes the partnership that was co-founded by Evergreen and Department of Corrections. So those are the co-founders, but includes lots and lots of other partners. As far as how we work together, the Evergreen side of the partnership has primary responsibility for the education, training, conservation programs, as well as things like maintaining our website and reporting on the overall partnership, building new partnerships. And then the Department of Corrections side is responsible for overseeing sustainable operations and community contributions programs, again, with support from the Evergreen side. How do projects develop? New SPP programs are developed in a variety of ways. And it's one of the things that I think is really cool about the partnership is that sometimes those ideas are coming from incarcerated people, sometimes from external partners that learn about us and have an idea, or sometimes it's from one of the founding partners on the Evergreen side or the DOC side, you know, has noticed an issue or something that seems like it could have some synergy and and make a great program. Awesome. Once we start to develop those programs, we try to include a variety of ideas. So even if like the idea comes from the evergreen side of the partnership, then we want to receive Department of Corrections staff input and incarcerated people's input in order to figure out if this is actually a viable idea, right? So, right. well, and sometimes we come up with an idea and it's like, oh, that, that's not going to work, you know? Right. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we're continually trying to think of ways that we include and hear from everyone impacted, uh, regardless of the power dynamics that are at play. To illustrate one way that partnerships get started, could you tell us a little bit more about the Monroe Composting Program? Yeah, so there's a a really impressive composting program at Monroe Corrections Center, and it's since been adopted at other prisons. But it was started by incarcerated individuals who had an interest in composting and staff that were supportive of investing in that interest. And so they started very small with a few worm bins. They, over time, kept improving upon their worm bin design. And, you know, last I heard, I think they were on their sixth version of the worm bin, and these are primarily made of reclaimed materials and the program grew to essentially a commercial scale vermicomposting program. They ended up adding in bokashi composting and composting with black soldier flies in addition and worked together to bring education and the certification to that program so that it could be credit bearing. The education components are delivered by the incarcerated individuals themselves as educators, those that have the experience in the program. And so it's a really impressive model. We've done things like co-present at international conferences with them. Wow. Fun fact. 
Bakashi and black soldier fly larvae composting differ from traditional composting, namely in the speed in which they break down material. Ooh. Bakashi is a type of composting that uses fermentation to help with the compost process. Some of the advantages of this composting process are that it breaks down materials in as little as 10 days, and you can add meat and dairy to the compost. Mmm. Which I would never do. Not even dairy? I would add dairy, but not meat because I don't eat meat. What if you were hanging out with me? and there's some leftover meat strips. I would make you put it in the compost. (laughs) Fair enough. Black soldier fly larvae speed the composting process because the larvae eat the food material and poop out a compostable material. Nice. Yeah, rich in nutrients and minerals. Compost material... That can be ready in as little as three days. That is so crazy. Right? So fast. Both of those. So fast. You can learn more about these composting programs in our show notes. We are currently working with that same group of incarcerated individuals and correction staff at a different prison, Washington Correction Center, and we're together co-creating a curricula that can be used statewide because the previous curriculum we developed was very specific to that one facility and the programs they were able to offer based on their space and their location. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now we're, we're developing this course and actually the course that we're working on is going to be used in Nevada prisons as well. And so that's just where we're starting. And like all of our other SPP education materials will make those broadly available to any other state that wants to use them. Very cool. Yeah. Do partner agencies participate in multiple programs at SPP? Yes. And I think Department of Fish and Wildlife is a great example of that. So we work with them on turtles, butterflies, and we're just starting a new shrub step education and training program. Cool. Yeah, we're interested in that. We had an episode about the sage grows. So. Oh, cool. Will you tell us a little bit more about some of the unique programs that are maybe not so science-based? Department of Corrections leads programs to do things like restore bicycles. So they will take in bicycles that are damaged and the incarcerated folks there will fix them up. Some of the paint jobs that these bikes get are so impressive. And then they donate them back to the community. So those are items that might otherwise end up in the landfill that get repurposed. Right. And get given to, you know, kids out in the community who may not otherwise get a fancy bike. So yeah, there are lots of pet programs that the Evergreen side has nothing to do with except that we report on them amazing work. So there are multiple different organizations. One of them focuses a lot on service dog training. And so they will train dogs to support their people. These dogs get amazing training when they come out. They make a huge difference in people's lives. There are also programs where they're partnering with a shelter where the animal may be hard to adopt. And so they receive training with incarcerated handlers who learn all about how to train them and help them be more adoptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. great. What are some of the challenges of managing so many programs? Yeah, I think partnerships, right? And communication. And again, making sure that everyone feels like they're benefiting. Everyone feels valued. That's a tricky thing, right? So we all hold a piece that makes this puzzle fit together because that's really Mm -hmm. what it is, right? And that no one puzzle piece holds more value than another. This is a tough thing in in the prison environment because there are so many power dynamics at play. Right. But we don't see the piece that the incarcerated individual holds as being less important than the piece that I hold or that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service holds. That's the idea. And that's challenging to make sure everyone feels recognized and valued. Mm -hmm. Are there any gaps or programs that SPP would like to develop? Yes. Oh my gosh. So many. Well, okay. So if we're talking about the in-prison work, Jen, we would love GIS, right? (laughs) Like imagine if we could provide people GIS training in prison. That's a a really cool skill. It's definitely in demand, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of challenges around the technology access. There's plenty of other education and training programs that I think we could provide in prison as well. But the piece that feels really important to me right now around gaps is the connection with employment and education post-release. Mm-hmm. So I feel really good about the pathway that we've built around education. We have folks that complete their sentence and go on to pursue additional education where we're really lacking, though, our employment pathways in the environmental field. And so that's an area where we have a lot of work to do to both support their overall reentry needs because folks face a ton of challenges mm-hmm. post-release, housing, employment. 
There is so much stigma and bias that makes it difficult for people to restart and have a fresh start. But then also, where are the employers that are willing to host folks and invest in their professional development so that they can pursue environmental careers? Mm -hmm. We're trying to build that now. And I'm really excited about some new discussions that are happening because we've long wanted, I imagined it as some sort of a sister organization that was sort of doing the outside the prison work. But Mm. I think now we're sort of shifting our thinking around that and looking to some of the conservation organizations because folks are asking a lot more questions about social justice issues in this population. In the 12 years of doing this work, then in the last three or four that folks are asking us about, hey, what's going on with mass incarceration? And is this exploitative? And asking really good questions about what is going on with this issue in this population? Right. And caring, right? And so it's a chance Mm -hmm. to ask, are you a second chance employer? You know, in addition to asking these really great questions about what's happening in prison, are you willing to invest in what's happening outside of prison? And folks are expressing a lot of interest. So I'm excited about that. That's great. That's very cool. Yeah. We talked about some of the technology barriers. Is that the major barrier? Are there some other major barriers to new program development? Well, I mentioned earlier, just even space, right? Prisons weren't designed with ample classroom space or program space. That wasn't part of the design. Right. And so having space, that's an issue for all the education organizations. And then it ends up creating this sometimes potential competition when we all have so much in common. We don't want to be competing with each other to be able to offer our programs. So the space issue is a major one. And then I mentioned before, I mean, it's in the bucket of technology, but the internet access. I mean, Mm -hmm. for any of us, imagine trying to navigate outside here without internet access. And while it's sort of outside the scope of what we do, you know, just even having better computer access because folks are releasing without technology literacy, right, that can help them navigate the world that we're all living in. I mean, it's changing so quickly. Yes. And if you've been incarcerated for a period of time, it may be pre smartphone. Like, I mean, that's a huge learning curve to try to pick that up when you get back out then, I would think. Right. And overwhelming, (laughs) right? It's one more stressor on you when you come out to like be trying to figure that out on top of everything else. Trying to rebuild your life. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, how many partnerships are involved in the Sustainability in Prisons project? Well, in our last annual report, we recorded nearly 200 different organizations that are involved in supporting programs. So, you know, we're really counting anyone that is part of making a a program possible, whether those are formal partners or allies or contributors in some way. That's a lot. Wow. Are new partnerships pretty much always welcome? Yeah, we're always welcome to considering new ideas. You know, one of the things that we are always trying to balance is do the partner's goals align with what we have capacity for? And so we're definitely at a place where we have to carefully consider, do we have capacity? Can we be good partners to that person? Do we feel like we can successfully pull off their idea? You mentioned earlier, are there barriers with Department of Corrections? Certainly to working in a prison setting, sure, there are challenges to implementing programs there. But I would say it's less often that the staff are, you know, not wanting programs. In fact, they definitely welcome them. I just came from a meeting this morning. We kind of had to select which ones we could do of all the ideas that they have because there's just not the capacity to implement everything, right? So I just wanted to be clear that we don't really have the barrier of whether or not there's Corrections staff buy-in. That's not a problem. It was more, you know, and I've been doing this work almost 12 years now, and I would say that it was more of a challenge to convince people, you know, early on when I when I first started. But that's really not the issue now. It's a matter of do we have all the resources we need to pull off what we're trying to do? Cool. So how do partnerships function? So a big part of our work and the work that the team that I most directly work with at Evergreen does is trying to identify the different roles in a partnership to make it succeed, to be to try to bring that clarity and communication to make sure that everyone's needs are met, to make sure that you know there's a good understanding of who's doing what in order to make that partnership function. I always use the puzzle analogy. It's what makes sense to me and that like we each bring a piece of the puzzle and that that forms the picture, right? And that it's not as though, oh, this piece of the puzzle is more important than this piece of the puzzle, but that if they don't all come together, then we don't, we have an incomplete picture or an incomplete partnership. How decisions are made? Um, that's the other part of the question. It really depends on what the decision is. So I hate to give you such a wishy-washy answer, but you know, if there's anything that's related to security or, you know, what incarcerated people are and aren't allowed to do, that's clearly a Department of Corrections decision. If it's something around, you know, education or conservation expertise, that's more the evergreen side of the partnership or our external partners that hold that 
that expertise mm-hmm. on species care and recovery. So, you know, if we look at the butterfly program for an example, you know, if there are decisions about when we're receiving butterflies, how many we're receiving, that's Department of Fish and Wildlife, Mary Linders and the team that she works with. If it's, you know, how are we going to care for them, bring in supplies, train the incarcerated folks, bring in the education that they need, that's the evergreen part of the partnership. We also handle a lot of the communication amongst all the partners. So we're helping to make sure that the biologist understands what's happening in the prison and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the folks at Mission Creek that host that program are responsible for, you know, helping us understand what the incarcerated people can and can't do, what kind of tools are allowed, what their schedule is, how many people we get to work with, that sort of thing. The incarcerated folks themselves make decisions about how the program operates, what they need to do in order to accomplish some of the procedures. They hold hold meetings about how they're going to work together as a team, how they're going to schedule themselves, you know, how they're going to take care of whatever task has been identified to, to be done for that week. So there's a lot that is on them too, that's in their hands as far as decisions making. Mm-hmm. And I think a really important part of the picture that it paints is that it's not one entity or agency that's making the decisions. It's really a cooperation through all levels. It's not SVPs like we do this. And right. This is how it's done. It's, no. it's a very collaborative process. Yeah. And you guys are very much a facilitator mm-hmm. of the communication, I'm sure, between the different parties. Yeah, that's a big part of our role. But yes, I think that's a really great way of putting Amy is that, you know, SPP describes the partnership, not one entity contributing right. to it. Mm-hmm. How do you keep partners motivated and engaged, particularly since there are so many of them? One of the challenges of such a big partnership is who gets the credit, who gets recognized, you know, does it look like the evergreen side of the partnership is, you know, doing all things? Because that's just not the case. There's no way 200 partnerships and nearly 200 programs operate with the tiny team that we have from evergreen. (laughs) It's just not, it's just not possible. Mm -hmm. That does sound like a challenge. Are there any new partnerships or programs that are forming on the horizon that you are interested in sharing? Yeah, there are. Evergreen just received funding. It's called the Evergreen Coalition for Justice Involved Students. And I know you interviewed James Jackson earlier. He's also a part of the coalition. There's a group of us at Evergreen who do corrections education work, who worked with college leadership to submit funding to the legislature. And we thought it was a long shot, but we actually got funding. And so we are working on planning a program. We have a year of funding to plan how to expand offering prison education and support post-release. And the partnership piece is not only within Evergreen and all the different offices or entities within Evergreen that have some linkage to this uh, proposal, including those organizations that have already been doing corrections education work, but also the external partnering with community colleges and other education organizations that have been doing corrections education work quite some time. The idea is that we help fill gaps where there are identified needs. So rather than trying to come in and take over or something, we're looking to complement programs that are already existing and to talk with the incarcerated population about what sort of education they want in which disciplines and how we can better meet that. So I'm really excited about that Um, partnership within our state. Another one is that we're working on the connection between education that's occurring during incarceration through SPP and then connections with employers post-release. We've been pitching an idea that's still in the early phases, but that is gaining traction for different conservation and natural resource agencies to host previously incarcerated people who have been in our programs to invest in their professional development and for us to provide some support between the inside work that we're doing and their reentry support post-release. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Seems like that would be a perfect fit, right? Yeah. Very exciting. Right. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about partnerships? Just that I know you've interviewed some of our other partners. I mean, while it's the most challenging part of the work, the partnerships, it's also the most rewarding and amazing part of the work, especially when a team is really functioning and everyone gets excited about it, like to have a whole group of people that are moving in the same direction. It's just a wonderful feeling. So I am really grateful to the partners that work with us and make our programs possible. Great. And I think that we heard that similarly about working with you as well. Right. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us today to talk about partnerships. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Next, we'd like to welcome Mary Linders. She has worked as an endangered species recovery biologist for the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife since 1994. For the past 18 years, she has worked to protect and recover populations of five at-risk prairie and oak-associated species in the South Puget Sound. Thanks for joining us today, Mary. Thank you, Amy. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the Sustainability in Prisons project? Yeah, I've been working with the Sustainability in Prisons project since about 2010. It's been a wonderful partnership, and somehow we are rearing butterflies in a prison as a result of that project, which has just been a miracle both for them and for us. So what kind of partnership do you participate in through the Sustainability in Prisons project? We were working with the Oregon Zoo. We were looking to expand the program. We have a lot of field sites that we're trying to prepare for reintroduction of Taylor's Checker Spot. And we needed more caterpillars, more butterflies coming out of captivity so we could populate those sites. And so we had a couple of us between the zoo and myself had been thinking, oh, wouldn't this be cool to do something like this in a women's prison? Wouldn't that be great? You know, and at the same time, uh, Nalini Nadkarni, who was the program lead at SPP at Evergreen at that time, approached us with exactly that type of a proposal, wondering if we would be interested in taking a risk trying to do this in a prison. Her effort was all about trying to get more science to the underserved communities there. That's so cool that you all kind of had the same idea and it all just came together at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it really was pretty amazing. Was it difficult to get your organization to agree to partnering with the Sustainability in Prisons Project? Well, the Sustainability in Prisons Project had been going on for some time already. And in fact, our agency, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, had already been partnering with them on a couple of other projects. And so it wasn't a hard sell to my agency. It was complicated to get it going. And we have, because we work with a lot of partners, there was definitely a lift there in terms of getting everybody on board. But within our agency, we already had a good working relationship with them. What were some of the pros and cons to get your agency to participate in this project? Yeah. (laughs) One of the pros was certainly that we already had some other conservation programs with SPP in South Sound related to the prairies. And so there was experience there. Also, we're trying to set this up as a working relationship with the Oregon Zoo. And so we weren't going to be doing all the lift on this because of the evergreen involvement in this. They were being the liaison. So at the face of it, it was not necessarily a lot of extra work and expense for us to go this route. Some of the cons were we had no idea really what was going to happen. (laughs) Right. It was a much more complicated project than anything that had been tried through SPP up to that point. So, and I think it's probably still one of the most complicated projects that they're running. Mm Who are the partners involved in this program? Yeah, so we have had a lot of partners. In addition to SPP, we have been working with the Oregon Zoo since 2004 on the captive rearing. And actually, we work with the Oregon Zoo on a lot of other projects as well. So there, again, we have a very deep relationship with them in conservation and rearing programs. Um, We work very closely with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They guide and approve a lot of the work that we do to make sure that it fits with federal regulations. They're also really important funders for us, supporters really on every level, I would say. We work also very closely with Joint Base Lewis McCord in the Department of Defense. They have also been a huge funder and supporter of what we're doing. And in turn, we are actually working with them on reintroduction and on population management. So they're a really fundamental partner. One of the important things about Joint Base Lewis-McChord is that they have about 90% of the prairie and oak woodland in the South Puget Lowlands here. So a lot of the habitat itself is on the base. But also they had at that point when we started was the only remaining population of Taylor's Checker Spot in this area. Oh, wow. And that population occurs on the artillery impact area, which which is a large arms live fire artillery impact area. So very difficult situation to work with. Um, We're trying to help them and support them to get those animals off of those lands. And we need those animals in order to recover the species elsewhere. So it's been a challenge for everybody, but also a really long and really good relationship with them as well. 
So in addition to JBLM and Department of Defense, we work on a whole bunch of different lands around the Puget Lowlands off base. We work with the Washington Department of Natural Resources, with the Center for Natural Lands Management, with Wolfhaven International, with Eco Studies Institute, and a host of other partners on habitat restoration and ultimately reintroduction. And all of this is kind of integrated with a couple Bring of other Bring in sometimes a lot of different well. science so materials for us. Yeah, readings and then very <laughs> complex, but like you're saying, uh, you're probably leveraging a lot of people's work. Absolutely. And partnerships take a lot of time. They do. They take <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of coordination. So how is this program funded? This program is funded primarily through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and through the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense has had several different programs. There's both funding on base that comes at time through their Fish and Wildlife program. And then at the higher national level, there's a number of funding programs that have allowed us not to just work with Taylor's Checker Spot, but with uh, several species, um, restoration funds, endowment funds. There's a whole host of programs that we've tried to employ to do this work. It is expensive, but it's also really beneficial. Because the Taylor's checker spot butterfly is a federally listed species, does that mean that there's some kind of funding that's just already available for it? Absolutely. Or do you guys still have to go out and constantly look for funding? Well, both, right? So there's no guarantees. Because it is a federally endangered species, it is eligible for a number of different grant funding sources. There's nothing that automatically comes just because you're listed. Gotcha. But it does make you eligible for a number of different grant sources. Yeah. But then there is competition and that competition is nationwide. So some of it's local. How has the partnership or program worked for your project? Have there been any issues or concerns? I think the partnership has worked great to say, you know, a lot there's no sooner. issues or concerns would be. And ridiculous. it takes a lot. Yeah. When I go right. back into the prisons and give presentations. Yeah, we are all. humans and what we're trying to do is very difficult. So We've had issues with, you know, staff turnover on the evergreen side of things. There is a natural turnover in the graduate students because the graduate students are typically only, you know, in their positions as liaison for, say, two to three years at the most. And then in addition, on the, the prison side, there is turnover as, you know, women actually are reaching the end of their sentence. They're eligible for work release, you know, those sorts of things. And then sometimes people don't work out. And so there is a certain amount of turnover there as well, in addition to a whole bunch of prison-related dynamics where people are or may not be available as well. So Right. And then, of course, you know, there can be access restrictions to really either the prison or we have access restrictions on base sometimes that affects our ability to count and collect butterflies. And so there's a lot of challenges right. mm -hmm. for sure. How do you share information and keep we have twice a year meetings, so we sort of have a pre-rearing season meeting where we get ready for what's to come, any changes that we feel like we need to make, that sort of thing, how many animals, how we're going to split those up if we have multiple release sites, all those sorts of details. And then on the tail end of all that, we do a debrief. And in the past, we've actually had those meetings in person, one of those meetings at the Oregon Zoo in Portland, and one of those meetings at Mission Creek. And we haven't been able to get the inmates down to Portland, but we are able to get the zoo staff up to the prison as well as myself. And so those meetings are always very well attended. We hash through a lot of details and there's no shortage of details in this project. It's, it's almost to the point of absurdity. <laughs> oh my. Wow. So they're very long, involved and in detailed. Yeah. And then in addition to that, during kind of the peak of the rearing season, there's a lot of just touching base because I'm trying to relay information from the field to folks in the prison, and they're trying to tell me what's going on there, if they're having any issues, what should we do, what's the timing, what are the butterflies doing this year, are they still caterpillars, have they pupated, that sort of thing. So, And that's where the Evergreen State College and their liaison role is absolutely critical. 
to making that link and making the whole thing work. Right, since they might not have access to say email. Right, low recidivism right. rate. That happens with successful honest, reentry. It should be a pathway. To actually get that to work smoothly. One of the challenges with working with a prison system is that they have to think through every detail of how a quote-unquote privilege could be used or misused. Right. What are the risks involved in any kind of outside communication. And so there's timing issues in all of that and challenges in all of that. So it's a long haul in terms of trying to create these systems and get them to work. Right. So sometimes more successfully than others. (laughs) (laughs) So did you have any experience working with incarcerated individuals prior to this project? I did not. I feel like I've seen a few sort of video clips of different things over the years, but I had no personal experience whatsoever. Just seemed like a possibility. Right. So has working with this project changed any preconceived notions that you've had of prisons or incarcerated people? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of our images and thinking about prisons really come from the media. Most of us don't have direct experience with Mm -hmm. prisons or their populations. And it's been one of the most rewarding things that I have ever done and has clearly kicked off for me kind of a lifelong fascination and interest in trying to work with programs like this because there's so much potential for them to be so successful. Not without challenge, but so promising. Yeah, it sounds very rewarding. Do you have any advice for any potential new partners or people who are interested in developing a program with SPP? Yeah, I think one of the most critical things is to really be very careful and detailed in the planning and asking the questions ahead of time Yeah. and understanding, you know, what are your goals and what is the product you need? Is it feasible in this environment? And to think about that really broadly, right? What are the things that could hang it up? What are the must-haves? Where is there room, you know, to be flexible? And then there's obviously the relationships, building the relationships that are involved in making those things happen. And finally, persistence. It just requires tremendous persistence to do the work I do anyway. When you sign on Mm -hmm. for Recovering an Endangered Species, you're in it for decades. Yeah. It's the same thing with a program like this. You really need to commit to it. When you commit to captive rearing, you're in it for decades. When you commit to working for a prison, you aren't necessarily committing up front because if it really doesn't work, you may have to back out. So you need to be prepared for that. Right. But by the same token, you have to do everything that you can to try to find ways, to try to push it through, to try to find the avenues that will work for your program and work for the people that are involved. And just be prepared to be creative. Yeah. This work can be so stressful and difficult on the one hand and with that comes the humor the absurdity of what it takes to actually make it work and then to see it thrive and work and see people you know in their element doing their thing it's the most beautiful thing in the world it captures the entire spectrum of human feelings really in it mm-hmm. It was good to get your perspective on kind of how things work within this project. And we're excited to learn more about the Taylor Checkerspot Butterfly Program when we bring you back. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Thank you, Amy. Next, we would like to welcome Carolina Londa, who's going to share more about her lived experience as a butterfly technician. Carolina identifies as a Mexican-American woman. She's a graduate of the Evergreen State College, where she received her bachelor's degree with a focus on law and policy, followed by her master's degree in public administration. Her three areas of specialized work are in social justice, disabilities, and immigration. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Carolina worked in the Taylor's Checkerspot Butterfly Rearing Program from 2011 to 2014 at the Mission Creek Correctional Facility in Belfair, Washington. Thanks again for joining us. How did you get into this program, and was it a competitive process? The process to get in the program is very vetted. We had to go through interviews, and then you had to be infraction-free mm-hmm. and be in compliance of good behavior. Mm-hmm. And they do prefer people that are staying there longer. Mm-hmm. Anybody that goes to Mission Creek is at four years or less. Okay. So that means you're at the last part of your stay, right? Gotcha. Yeah. 
Do you have any recommendations for community members that are interested in identifying or developing a new partnership with SPP? So for me, the experience really helped in my re-entry, right? Mm -hmm. That's when I first started to think about, okay, what kind of opportunities can I get when I am released, whether that's working or education with this kind of training. Mm -hmm. Oregon Zoo was always like, we will hire you. Come to Oregon, right? Like, please. Mm -hmm. But there are barriers with criminal backgrounds, right, that Mm -hmm. exist. Mm -hmm. So then that's when I first started thinking, okay, what if I want to pursue school? I want to go to college then. And that program really helped me start to think I want to have a successful reentry. I want to do more with my life. And uh, I did do an internship with SVP after I was on campus at Evergreen and I did a reentry internship. And I know that they really have been trying to work heavily on this area, mm-hmm. which is them being able to give more reentry focused tools to people and being able to stay connected to the people. So I know they have been consistently making that effort, but I think a partnership, right, that brings in that focus area, I think would be very, very beneficial. How did other incarcerated people view your participation in these programs? Like, you know, you're playing with butterflies. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there was comments like that, too, at first, right? (laughs) Like when we were talking about some of the staff came from that same kind of narrative, right? Right. They're like, what do you, you go outside the gate and you get to just work with butterflies all day long. What do you guys do out there? There was always a lot of questions. And then there was some people as media and then started showing up and they were like, oh, wow. Okay. And then that would get them more curious and want to ask questions and what is that you do? And so, yeah, that was kind of, you know, also the narrative around, right? How other people felt that were incarcerated with us. And then also more people wanted to be like, do you think I could apply? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think I could do? And we would be like, yes. And I'll let you know when a spot opens up and you should totally apply. And they were like, well, how'd you do it? And I'm like, well, a kiosk message will be sent out and then you'll actually do an interview just like you do outside. Right. Which was right. also something that called my attention at the beginning because all of the other jobs were prison labor jobs, which are mm-hmm. laundry, kitchen work, and you just, you know, get put on the list. And if you're next, you get the job. But this, there was actually, it was a full description of what you were going to do and then what maybe possible qualifications or what kind of interests you had. And then an actual interview process. Right. And I was like, in prison? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it does sound like over time, the program was pretty popular to participate in. Yes, there have been. A lot of people that have participated in the program and that also have found success and positive re-entering into the community. I think other people participated that followed the same trajectory. They go into the program, they stay connected to SVP, they help them with any resources they can, or they reach out to me. I think they found a lot of success. Did you get Evergreen credit for the work that you had done? Yeah, so... I was the first person to receive the 15 credits. SVP had been trying for a very long time because nobody had gone to the school and then done the certificates and the programming and then came to the school and said, here, now give me credit. So when it actually was real, they were like, okay, we will do it. So yeah, I was one of the first participants. It would be even better if you could just get the credit directly from the work, but you know, (laughs) Yeah, and I know that um, currently SVP is really trying hard for the credits to be given (laughs) while you're in the program. And focus on that would be it just gives so much initiative and like drive for the person. Like I think back when I was there and if they would have been like, you have 15 credits that go to the school that you want or even just evergreen or Mm -hmm. that would just be an extra push to be like, well, now I have actually 15 credits. Now I got to go to school, right? Yeah. So besides the college credits, what other benefits did you receive from your participation in the program? So what happens when you work with environment and species, there's a therapeutic component that happens. Mm -hmm. And so for me, sounds very cliche. The butterfly is a metamorphosis of what can happen to an individual while they're there. Mm -hmm. And so in the program, I felt like I was also changing over time, right? This metamorphosis that happens. 
I gained a lot of just, you know, therapy from being able to work with like such a delicate and beautiful species and then how all of the stages that happened it was just very profound right and being able to go outside the fence every day for seven hours be away from prison life inside and then just be in that greenhouse and work with the butterfly and then also get to know my peers right that I was working with and have really long and deep conversations about life and So I was able to really work on building these skills of how to bond with my sisters and then take these friendships with me out into the community. I still have remained connected with with all of them. I just remember the sun coming up in the morning and hitting. It's a glass greenhouse. And it would just hit the greenhouse when we'd have our coffee and we'd get to (laughs) pretend we were somewhere else, right? For a little bit of time. Yeah. So it was seven hours a day. Was that all the time? No. Just different periods of the life cycle? So it was seven hours all the time, but seven hours during the actual cycle, right? So the larvae would wake up the caterpillars and then they'd start going into the chrysalis and then they would close, come out, and then they'd mate in the cycle, right? The babies and then all Mm -hmm. of it. But then they do go to sleep, the diapause time. So then there are several sheds out there, and we'd put them into these clay pots. And in the wintertime, I would be trying to make sure there was enough humidity, taking the temperatures. During the winter, it is more of a slow cycle, right? We're not actually doing the whole cycle. So SVP and the intern would bring in sometimes a lot of different science materials for us to do readings and then, you know, come back and do some lectures. I did the programming for two years but then I had to go and do another program in the prison so it limited my time that I could go there and I couldn't actually work there anymore so I volunteered my time on the weekends together so you could still participate even though you weren't in it anymore right that even says quite a bit right there right Mm -hmm. yeah do you think that participating in it has made recidivism less likely for you Oh, yeah. I am grateful for the program. And I really think that that was the pivoting moment and point for me where mm-hmm. I started to think differently about how I exist in the world, who I am. So I always credit the program to like me having a successful reentry. I mean, you've gone on, you got your bachelor's degree, your master's in public administration. Clearly, it seems like you are very successful and have made the very best you can out of your situation. Thank you. Do you feel like these programs are exploitative or do you think they're moral, ethical? So this is the big question all the time. When we talk about prison abolition, and it's a very wide, you know, range of things and I believe in my heart I'm an abolitionist, but um, but there are, like, parts of prison labor, right, has worked for years, and talk about Jim Crow, and, and I totally and fully understand those concepts and how this model can be looked as that. But what I will tell you, though, is, for me, the experience I've had in the program was what got me to this place, and mm-hmm. so... I know that SVP has tried several times to make the pay higher. Right. But there's tape around that, and it's something that SVP cannot control. Right. And so when you look at that, of course, that seems like, oh, yes, that is a prison labor kind of wage. Exactly. And it can be exploitative. Yeah. But there has been multiple efforts for them to try and raise that. But it just hasn't been successful. And so for me, I feel if you're understanding what the concept is and where it's coming from and you're trying to push change then don't believe the programs are exploitative and i think it's right if you talk to the individuals themselves that have been in the program then how is somebody else from the outside going to negate what this individual right. says of their own experience so i exactly. think really That's the focus. Do they believe it is exploitative? I mean, that's part of the reason why we're asking the question, right? Because it seems like a good deal because you get this training and the education. And then when you look at like you were working a full time job and making nothing, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I think immigration detention, they had to just 
raise their wages, oh, yeah. right? They yeah, I saw that. did. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Things like that, I think. And mm-hmm. the firefighter wage also. I mean, oh, still only $15 an yeah. hour, but yeah. certainly better than a couple dollars a day or whatever it would have been otherwise. Well, we would get 60 cents an hour. Oh, so. God. Yeah. yeah. It was $55 a month. Wow. wow. It is very, very, very low. Mm-hmm. If you could change anything about the program, what would that be? For me, the, everything happened the way it was supposed to, and it was supportive and helped, and just have those programs be available for more participants. And even at different prisons, sometimes the requirements, if you're in too long, you only get these kind of programs, really complex DOC policies, and then that create barriers mm-hmm. for people to participate, and then also for the community partners to be able to really fully engage the program how it should be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other negative there would be that you would just make more butterfly babies. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I mean, let's get some more greenhouses out there, right? right, right. <laughs> yeah. So what are you doing now? Are you still involved with SPP? So I serve on their advisory board. They will come to me if they need some help in any kind of decision making or if they have a problem and they need help figuring it out. And I think more so now, too, because I'm in this role at the Ombuds Office. So the Ombuds Office is a neutral, impartial outside agency that was created in 2018 after 10 years of advocacy efforts by stakeholders. There was just one ombudsman. He was inside a DOC, so he was a DOC employee. And so how neutral and impartial is that? No. And (laughs) one person for all of the 12 prisons? Wow. No. We have about 15 staff at the office, but we do have oversight to the 12 prisons in the state of Washington and the 12 work releases. Anything that falls in community custody, we don't have jurisdiction over. So I particularly am over the gender equity and reentry. So that means the two women prisons. So that's Mission Creek and WCCW. I have oversight to those two. And then the 12 work releases across the state. And then anything that has to do with reentry. So it's before you go out into community or when you're at only the work releases. And then that area is my concentration. We do individual and systemic work. So that means individually people call us on the hotline that we have or they write us or their family members do an online complaint. We have several areas where they can contact us. And then we open up individual cases, depending on if it's within our jurisdiction. But we do everything from property to visitation to all of it. And then systemic reports. We usually take on a few areas throughout the year. Usually it ranges from four to five different topics of systemic change that we're trying to to push forward. And that comes basically from areas that, you know, raising concern. It's mm-hmm. happening a lot. Mm-hmm. What do you most want people to know about the experience of incarceration and reentry? So prisons are a very difficult place to be. I know for me, it was just like a very odd experience. And I tried to just think of how I had gotten there. And I just never thought I would actually be there, right? Mm-hmm. The experience itself is like very traumatizing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that happen inside of prisons that are not the best. And also the way people that work there view the people that they're housing. Yeah. And I think if people can forget that these are actual humans, people just like them. Yeah. And so sometimes those biases that people carry and they bring them into work, I know for them it's a job. They come to, they do their job, but people actually live there over a period of time. Right. And some people for the rest of their lives. Sometimes there are DOC staff that want to do better or they do bring in their own ideas and they really want to do good. But it's such a tough structure. Right. All the policies and everything is about safety and security. I will say they are trying to shift more and more and they're bringing in different partners like AMEND, they're an organization that contracts with different states and they bring in what the Norway model looks like into U.S. prisons and the states basically have to reach out to them and say, okay, and it's not that all of the Norway model can exist in, you know, just like across the board, but some parts of it. And so I, DOC has contracted with them and so they are trying to get to a better place. And then reentry, so it's a big focus. And when we talk about 
making sure people don't come back. So no recidivism, right? Low recidivism mm-hmm. rates. That happens with successful reentry. It should be a pathway throughout all of incarceration, not just you're on your last year. Okay, let's get you all the stuff. It should start a lot sooner. Right. And it takes a lot. When I go back into the prisons and give presentations and my focus is really like build your network like your network starts in here Mm. and if you need something when you go back into community then you know who you have to ask for help i think that's one of the biggest barriers if you go out into the community and you feel completely alone there is conditioning that happens when you're in prison and you're completely away from society for Mm -hmm. a period of time and then you come back and technology is something really difficult that people have a hard time adjusting. I mean, right now it moves so fast, Mm -hmm. but if you've been away for so long and you come out to a smartphone and it takes pictures and video and, you know, (laughs) right. And so that in itself is a very difficult process. Also those things. And then the barriers that exist once you have a criminal background. In the state of Washington, we were able to vacate your record after a certain amount of time, depending on certain felonies. Mm -hmm. And I was also part of that advocacy effort. But when you come out, that is going to be on your record, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you get into housing? How do you get employment? Especially, yeah, when we have housing shortages as it is. Yeah. And so all of those things, it can be very challenging. Uh, Do you have any funny, silly, or humorous stories from your participation in the butterfly program that you like to share? One time we were heading out with an officer and she was very by the book, very strict. You'd never hardly ever see her smile, you know, just very, very serious. And it was a bunch of us and she was just escorting us to the greenhouse and then some other people that worked outside the perimeter. And we were talking about like, oh, yeah, if you escape. I think she initiated the conversation trying to be like very tough, you know, and she's like, if you escape, you know, that's a five year minimum added on to your prison sentence. So none of you try to think about this. Right. And we were like, okay. And then she said, and also just know that your picture, the one you have on your ID will be blasted all over the news. Right. Like, so you're not going to get very far. And then I said, oh. I better get a retake of my picture. This is a really bad picture of me right now. And I thought it was so funny, but she didn't think it was funny. I I was like, I'm joking. I was joking, you know? (laughs) But, you know, all that humor was always just things that we would just say in the moment to try to find laughter. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great learning about the butterflies (laughs) and more about partnerships within the Sustainability in Prisons Project. Thank you. So there you have it, the end of episode three. We hope you have learned more about the complex web of partnerships and programs that make up the Sustainability in Prisons Project, and that maybe you have even thought up one of your own ideas of a program or project that you could propose to partner with SPP. Mm. In this episode, we learned that SPP is really just a network of partnerships. One of the biggest concerns with starting a new partnership is ensuring that all parties are benefiting from it, and especially that incarcerated individuals that are participating in these programs are not further exploited. Maybe you or your organization has fresh ideas about a new potential partnership that brings science, technology, nature, or education into the prisons. We'll be talking about other ways besides creating a whole project or program that you can also use to help bring your knowledge and expertise into the prisons in future episodes. Stay tuned. Please join us for episode four in two weeks on July 19th, where we will dive further into some of the conservation programs at SPP. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, will we make it out alive? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? This is Amy the Poop Detective. Square dancing away, partner. Oh my. And this is Jen the Magical Mapper rolling her eyes all the way till the next episode. See you then. Bye!